Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Early on in the pandemic, in the earliest days of the lockdown, we wondered how it was going to change the world. In part, it was easier to look out and try and figure out the effects on the world rather than dig deeper and wonder how it might affect us personally. But it did give us time to think, to wonder, and for some to be deeply creative, to use the hand we had been dealt as a springboard to see the familiar in new ways, to cope with isolation in new ways, to reaffirm or reconnect our most intimate relationships. All of this has given way to what might become the genre of the pandemic art form, be it in the form of art or music or movies or the novel. If my guest Katie Hafner's debut novel, The Boys, is any indication, it's going to be a great genre. Katie Hafner is a journalist and author. She spent 10 years at the New York Times and has extensively covered technology and healthcare. She still writes frequently for the Times and the Washington Post. She's the author of six nonfiction books, including Mother, Daughter, Me, and is the host and co-executive producer of the popular podcast Lost Women of Science. It is my pleasure to welcome Katie Hafner back to the program to talk about the boys. Katie Hafner, thanks so much for joining us. Wow, thanks so much. What an introduction. Can I bottle that? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, well, the, the most interesting thing about your introduction was I hadn't really thought about this whole genre of um, create. I mean, obviously, it's been written about all of the creativity that's come out of the pandemic. But I think one of the things is like, what did what did we do with our pandemic? You know, right? And what did it bring forth from us? Well, talk about what it brought forth from you, and 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 a little bit about before we get into the boys, a little bit about the evolution of it. How did how did it grew out of being locked in for you? Um, at first, I, uh, when the pandemic started, I was so kind of shaken by it that I, I was writing pieces for the Times. I, I do a lot of health or did a lot of healthcare reporting for them. So I was doing pieces that were just devastating about um, the visitor restrictions and people not being able to see their relatives who died alone and people putting off. Um, going to the ER and then dying because of it, uh, horrible stuff. And um, then I had been where I actually had been working on the boys. Then when I settled down a little bit and realized I couldn't keep, I just couldn't keep doing these stories for the times they were too upsetting. And luckily I have the luxury of deciding not to because <laughs> um, I'm no longer on staff. I mean, I'd be on the phone with my editor um, who would be crying. I mean, it was just, it was really, really tough for a lot of reporters to be reporting as she was in New York. And that's when they had the refrigerator trucks. Anyway, um, so I thought, you know, maybe the boys, which I had pretty much written, if you can believe it, should be pandemicized. Not that the pandemic should be like the main thing, the main organizing principle of the book, but what if it was a subtle backdrop? And what if it just accentuated things that people feel anyway? Like one theme that runs through the book is is loneliness and social isolation. Um, and 
uh, kind of anxiety, the anxiety produced in a lot of us, especially in the beginning days when we remember when we were all wiping down our groceries, and, right? Like freaking out and running out of the grocery store if we thought someone had breathed on us. And uh, so I just decided to make it. So this was back in 2020. I decided to make it just a backdrop, like kind of subtle. But I had to make some stuff up, like what would it look like in two years? Would there be a vaccine? I had no idea. Would there be a vaccine? Would the vaccines be required to go into like a store? Um, and it, that all just seemed almost sci-fi-ish, you know. And it turned out to be exactly what happened. So then my agent, he shopped the book around with this. And I was really clear that I didn't want him to shop it as a pandemic novel. Like someone like Gary Steingart can get away with it because he's Gary Steingart, right? Um, and his book, Our Country Friends, is all about the pandemic. But I'm, you know, I'm a beginner novelist and I just didn't want to try to do that. So it ended up working out really well. Um, Cindy Spiegel at Spiegel and Grau, which, you know, used to be an imprint of Random House. And um, then they, they resurrected themselves as an independent publisher. And Cindy, there's a big twist in the book and Cindy read the manuscript and she said when she got to the twist to the reveal she just started laughing <laughs> and I thought that's interesting <laughs> you're not supposed to be laughing <laughs> so anyway so she bought it and um, we've had this back and forth a lot about how much we market it as a pandemic book more than just a pandemic book, there is the sense that, and, and I know this is true for a lot of people in, in varying degrees, of course, that things they did, things that they thought about, or the things that emerged even after the pandemic in, in the creative arena were somehow shaped by, because their experience was shaped by, their thought process for so long was shaped by what went on during the pandemic. So that even though it may not be a pandemic novel, it did have an influence. It did, yeah. Like the main character kind of goes into a deep hole um, that he that might not have happened without the pandemic. And then one of my main characters... Um, she studies loneliness among older adults as a public health hazard uh, and social isolation. But I had her doing that before the pandemic. And then that just, you know, got like totally ampl amplified that problem during the pandemic. So that's that's probably what you're well, and, and and it's still, it's, it's interesting because it's even still amplified today as people that are working at home, working remotely, are dealing with, a lot of them are dealing with issues of loneliness that, that they didn't deal with before when they went into an office every day. Yes, that's true. And um, yeah, we figure out ways to socialize. I don't know. I'm, I, it's funny. I'm, I have a lot less uh, tolerance for really young people who can figure it out versus <laughs> although you hear all kinds of things about how the, how younger people are now like freaked out about being around people but i've got to tell you jeff it's the it's these older adults where it has been a, a true devastation to be isolated in the first place before the pandemic um 
there's an entire scene in the book where um, Barb, one of the main characters, goes to England and she sits in on this loneliness hotline, which actually exists. It's a story that I did for the New York Times about five years ago, five or six years ago. And I sat in on this loneliness hotline where people call in and, oh, it was sad. I cannot even begin to describe to you how sad this was. So my point is that it's people who have lived full lives and then are left completely alone, many of them abandoned by their families and have absolutely no one to talk to. There was this one woman who had not, her kids live like a mile away. She had not seen them. She had not used her voice. She had not spoken in a week. It's just uh, hard to imagine because we as creatures, um, as a species, are social animals. So, um, it, but don't worry, the book, I'm making it sound like the book is really depressing, but it actually isn't. It isn't. <laughs> T- talk a little bit about, w- without revealing too much, obviously, and that's the, the danger here, talk a little bit about the setup for the boys, about uh, Barb and Ethan and, and these two boys. So, Barb, um, thank you for getting me back on a, a sunnier track. Okay, so um, Ethan is a very endearing, socially awkward genius computer programmer who's um, never really had a girlfriend as far as I can tell. And he uh, lost his parents at an early age. And so he kind of yearns for family and um, he meets Barb. They're both working at this kind of fake receptionist company where you call a number and you think there's a receptionist sitting at a desk because they act like it, but they're all sitting in some, you know, office in Philly and Barb works there as a receptionist, as a virtual receptionist. He's the IT guy, and he drums up his courage to ask her for a date, and she's totally taken with him, and they get married. And then there's this kind of thrash about around having kids, and they decide in the end to, um, to foster these two young Russian twin boys. Um, kind of as a trial, a parenting trial and trial run. And um, anyway, then the pandemic comes and Ethan gets super attached to the boys and very protective of them. And Barb throws up her hands and ends up leaving. And, um, and then that's the first half of the book. And then the second half, and you don't, I'm not giving anything away because in the opening scenes, they're already separated. Um, so then in the second half of the book, I can't even tell you because that's when the reveal happens. And I don't know how to finesse that when I talk about it. I still haven't figured it out. Um, but stuff, ha- stuff is, stuff, things are revealed. <laughs> that's all I can say. And so you end up seeing the characters in a completely different light. And what I can say is that when I started thinking, going down this road, this reveal road, my husband sat me down. He said, have you ever seen the movie Sixth Sense? And I said, no, like, what's that? And so he sat me down to watch it. And it is really smart the way, um, have you seen it? I have not, Um, no. Oh, well, it's an amazing, oh gosh. 
it's an amazing uh, example of how we go into a story, we the reader or we the viewer of the film, um, with our anchoring bias, like a, a, a bias that has us so anchored in what we believe to be true that we do not see um, what isn't. And so in The Sixth Sense, the reveal comes at the very, very, very end. And then you go back and there are all these clues and you're just kind of slapping your forehead saying, why didn't I see that? And so that's what I did with the boys was I just planted all these clues. And so a lot of people are reading the book over again to try to trip me up. Like the reviewer in the the New York Times, she said, okay, I got to the reveal. I had to put the book down for a day. And then I went back and reread it thinking Hafner might have like slipped up and she, and luckily she said, and she didn't. So um, you have to be super careful when you're doing something like that. You talk a little bit as much as you can about Ethan and the boys and the way he becomes almost obsessed with them. Yeah. Not even almost, but like totally. Um, so he had a tough childhood. As I said, he lost his parents when he was young um, and he, as kids often do, um, because they are very, you know, centered on themselves, he thought he was to blame for their death. And so he's been carrying this kind of secret around that he can't even tell Barb the role he thinks he played in their death. And um, so what he thinks is that he didn't keep his parents safe. And um, when he could have, which like is re- totally ridiculous, but th- I'll let the reader figure all that out. And so when the boys come into their lives, he becomes obsessed with keeping them safe to the point where they never leave the house. He, you know, he thinks he now thinks they're allergic to everything. Um, you know, they had a cat they loved, but he tells Barbara, we can't get another cat because they must be allergic. And she's like, are you kidding me? And so, um, and so his obsession with the boys, he you know, wants to homeschool them because he thinks that it's unsafe out there in the world. And, uh, and she's just like, this is crazy. And they even go to a couples counselor who tries to get to the bottom of what might be happening Barb thinks that maybe he's headed for some kind of weird breakdown because there's something called the anniversary reaction where he's approaching the, and this is a real thing where he's approaching the age that his parents were when they died. And um, it turns out that this is an actual phenomenon where somehow some deeply embedded trauma, and I'm not a huge trauma you know, person, I'm more in the get over it category, but I do understand it since I've had a lot of trauma in my own life. I know that things can get stirred up pretty quickly and pretty easily and pretty dramatically. And so that's what Barb, who's a um, psychology, um, she's a psychologist. She has this theory that that's what Ethan is headed for and she can't reach him. And that's what drives her away. 
It's interesting because that 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 anniversary thing seems to be more true. At least it's it's been written about more for men than women. I'm not sure why. Oh, that is so interesting. Do you think it's because men tend to repress more, and so the more deeply buried something is, then it's going to come out almost in an explosive way. Like my father used to say, I used to say. Um, Dad, have you ever like gone to a shrink? And she, he said, Oh gosh, no. If I went to a shrink, he said, I'm like an old house. If you and I think I use this analogy in the book. If you like, if you take one little piece of peeling wallpaper and tear it away, the whole house will come down. <laughs> so men are like that. That's men. I mean, they do tend more than not, more than women. I think men do tend to to bury stuff. Well, and and I think that that's part of the anniversary th- thing with with men, is that because their relationships with their fathers in most cases are complicated and less resolved and 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 less talked about and less dealt with, the death of the father becomes a point at which you know something ends. You can no longer resolve it at that point, and so it takes on a different kind of meaning. Yeah. I think that's right. That's such a good point. And also, we identify so closely. Men often identify so closely with their fathers um, that, yeah, wow. Yeah, it's the human, you know, the, I, here's another super interesting tidbit for you. Um, I have got, I thought it was kind of a chick book. I don't know what you think, but um, a little bit, but maybe not since the protagonist is a man. But anyway, um I get so many emails from men, men of a certain age, who want to talk to me about all the profound things they see in the book. Like one person, um, Dan Lowenstein, who's the provost at UCSF, mm-hmm. um, he wrote me, he was so moved by the book, he wrote me a really long email about how moved he was. And then... This guy who's an ICU doc, who's a deeply religious man, um, and he studies uh, post-ICU trauma, which has been especially prevalent since the uh, pandemic, people coming off, you know, um, sedation and ECMO. And, um, he went on and on about the, all the spiritual elements and the... Um, and what I was conveying about the human condition that I didn't even know I was conveying. So in a way, isn't it great that men who don't read as much fiction as women do, um, especially contemporary fiction, I think it was very, and not kind of not the, you know, Le Carre type. <laughs> right. Um, right. And this is a book about humans. I mean, about, I mean, about relationships and a marriage, and um, so I'm really happy about that. Well, it's, it's particularly, it must be interesting for you having written about as much as you have and talked about, because you've written about it, the mother-daughter relationship. Sort of. I mean, the only mother-daughter relationship in this book is a wonderful one between Barb and her mother, Bunny, and I wanted to write a book. I was really intent on writing a book where everyone is fundamentally a good person. And 
I ha- I've had so many dodgy characters in my own life and so much darkness throughout my life. I, life, I thought, you know, why would I want to spend three years w- with characters I've made up when they could be anything who are dark and bad? So um, when the book got rejected by a number of publishers before um, Cindy Spiegel took it, um, one of the people who rejected it this really nice editor from Holt, he wrote, I, he wrote to my agent. He said, you know, I loved the book. Unfortunately, I couldn't get my editorial team to get behind it. Um, and it was such a nice rejection that I wrote him a thank you letter. I know that's unusual. <laughs> and, um, and I said, you know, in my thank you letter, I said, just, I want to thank you so much. It was such a kind rejection. And, um, and then he wrote back and he, it was real. And I said, what I said in my note to him was, I set out to write a novel where everyone is basically good. Um, and he wrote back and he said, um, he said, what you did was very daring because there's an old adage in literature, which is that, um, that goodness, happiness writes white, i.e. invisible. But you managed to pull it off with a cast of characters who are good and also interesting and um isn't that nice it's very nice and it's also a reminder of of some of the issues that we face in in the larger culture and society today that that people can be flawed and you could even not like them or like them but 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 even not like them and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad or that they're evil right exactly but they're complicated yeah yeah but i still you know i know that one incredible book which is a true masterpiece is a little life i can't i can't i mean i've heard that people start sobbing and have to put it down and it's like i can't bring that into my life right now i don't know why and i thought and waiki wang the novelist who's actually hilarious but i didn't know her before she reviewed the book in the times um, she said, "You know what? This is just, this book is just the antidote everybody needs after the pandemic, because um, it's almost—I wouldn't say it's a happy-go-lucky book, but it, but it's a—it's basically a pretty sunny book. I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what you think. Well, so, I mean, I guess I mean it is sunny in in that sense, and and I guess it's it's all relative, also, because so much around us today is so dark." that the bar for Sonny is not that high. Yeah, I think that's true. It's like, yeah, exactly. I know, like, I don't want to watch dark TV shows, except uh, we did just finish Better Call Saul, which was so incredible. So had to, but that's just, that has so many funny moments as well. <laughs> I mean, that's that that's a different kind of dark, I suppose. It's not dark in the sense that we're talking about. Correct, yeah, it's not... It's not truly dark commentary on the human condition, although a little bit. So, yeah, yeah. Katie Hafner, her novel is The Boys. Katie, I thank you so much for spending time with us. That was great. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you.